Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. Trey, how was your Thanksgiving? I was all by myself, and I loved it. I had pizza. The (laughs) traditional Thanksgiving meal, pizza with what on it? Pepperoni. Okay. All right. I can get behind that. Well, we had unexpected uh, an unexpected guest, actually. My dad, uh, I wasn't expecting anybody for Thanksgiving, but my dad made it into town. And um, so we actually spent last night watching the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony because he wanted to watch that. So that's very timely because that's the topic of our episode today. So we're just going to kind of talk about this year's inductees into the rock and roll hall of fame. We'll talk a little bit about the performances and uh, and maybe we'll listen to some of our favorite songs from some of the inductees. How does that sound to you, Trey? Sounds great to me. Very cool. This year, the first inductee was a band we know all too well. And that was Duran Duran. So excited. I squealed like a little schoolgirl when they came on. It was pretty cool. It was just, you know, it was amazing seeing that happen for them. They, they, they truly deserved it. You know, we, we've, we've, we've showered their praises a million times, and there's not much more I can add to that, but they just, it's, it's fantastic. Absolutely. And so they were inducted by Robert Downey Jr., who was looking very strange, wearing a green suit, green glasses, and a shaved head. What was up with that? I was wondering what they, was it for a role? The oh, head? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I know I know that a lot of people in the Duran Duran group were saying they wondered why he was chosen to do that. And I, I thought it was kind of odd too. Not that I have anything against him, but you know, I didn't think it was that odd because last year uh, they used Drew Barrymore to induct the Go Go's. And so traditionally, at least for the general inductees not necessarily for some of the special awards but for the general inductees it's always somebody on whom the band has had an influence a lot of times it's another musician as we'll see later on but you know sometimes it could be somebody else in pop culture like an actor and you know robert downey jr was talking about how the band played at his 50th birthday party and he shared a little anecdote with the crowd about how a famous Hollywood director's wife removed her bra and threw it up on the stage while Duran Duran were playing at his birthday party. <laughs> I missed all that somehow. Oh, okay. Make, makes sense. You probably just forwarded it through the performances, right? I listened to it. I had several things going on at the same time, so I, I, I heard him. Okay. And I heard them talking, and you know, apparently they goofed up girls on film. That didn't make it into the final edit of the episode, but yeah, I, I heard from people that were there. Right. 
when they first started performing Girls on Film, the audience could only hear Simon, but not the band. There was a problem with the mixing board. Oh, I thought it was a type of thing where somebody was playing the wrong song or something. No, actually, I guess the audience could only hear Simon. They couldn't okay. hear any of the instruments. They weren't hooked up to the the uh, speakers properly or there was a problem at the mixing board. You know, so Simon took it in stride. You know, he he, he joked about the wonderful, spontaneous world of rock and roll. This didn't make it into the episode that we saw as fans. But if you were in the theater, you probably saw this. You know, it, it's kind of funny, really, you know, in the era of lip sync and auto tune and everything in, in music right now. Yeah, it's actually kind of refreshing that it was actually, you know, the audience was actually to hear that it really was Simon singing, you know, that this wasn't another like Millie Vanilli debacle. Yeah. What was that other girl that caught, caught lip syncing on Saturday Night Live? Oh, back around 2004. I don't remember. I can't either. I'll have to look that up later tonight. Uh, back to Robert Downey Jr., of course. One of the things that he said in his induction speech that I thought was just beautiful, it's infectious. Duran Duran invites us to put all our best days here, now, and still in front of us. It's amazing that they've had such a long life. You, you know, they really have. And, and I feel almost vindicated because when I was growing up, I caught so much crap from my, my stepfather, especially for Duran Duran. I mean, so many people thought that this was just like a, a formulaic boy band that was just going to, you know, flash in the pan, kind of here today, gone tomorrow. And they weren't, you know, and they ended up being not only on the music scene for 40 years and top selling, you know, but now inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall exactly. of Fame. So I feel so vindicated against my stepfather and everybody else who gave me so much shit for liking them. I caught a lot too, mainly from other boys because they thought they were a girl band. But I was like, all the pretty girls are listening to them. That's who I'm, you know, that's who I'm talking about this band with. What are you guys all up standing there next to each other? Well, you know, you're not the first person that I've heard that from. Oh, what's his name? The the writer who wrote the book talking to girls about Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. What's his name? Rob. It's Rob Sheffield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he kind of talks about that in his book, too, where, yeah, it's good music, but it's also a good way to meet girls in the 80s. Exactly. You know? I mean, not to sound like a hipster, but when I found got into them, nobody knew who they were really yet. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, every hot, hot chick at school was into them. And I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, did you notice that Simon was wearing a Susie Sue tee? Yes, I did. Several people pointed that out. Yeah. They played a three song set. They played Girls on Film. They played Hungry Like the Wolf, and that was cool because you could see LL Cool J in the audience, and he was totally rocking out. Totally rocking out. Yeah. I think there's a gif of that going around now. And they played Ordinary World, and then you could see Lenny Kravitz was in the audience singing along. That's one of their best songs. Oh, absolutely. You know, I and a, I... lot, a lot of people aren't, you know, they're not real big on that album, but that is a, one of their most fantastic songs. 
you know, and I don't think I realized until last night just how much that song has united people. And I mean, I know Simon wrote it about a friend of his who had died. But like last night, so I was, I was just sitting on my couch watching it and my dad started singing along. And I, first of all, I'm thinking, wait a minute, how does my dad know this song? But then I kind of started singing too, and it was kind of cool. And I realized, wow, you know, this, this is music that really brings people together. I mean, it was a massive hit. I mean, it was spring, summer of 93. That song was everywhere. I mean, down here, I don't know about up there, but it was on all the stations here. Our short-lived alternative rock channel was playing it and the Top 40 station was spinning it. Yeah. So it was, you know, that was a fun... I saw that tour, unfortunately. It focused mostly on that album, but it was still a really good show. So I'm thinking maybe we should play a little bit of that song then, since that seems to be the performance that really uh, resonated with us, huh? Well, let's go with it. All right. bombshell i guess although by now i suppose it's old news simon read a letter from andy taylor in which he told everyone that he was not there because he has stage four prostate cancer and it is not treatable that's horrible i don't yeah yeah that was upsetting yeah the the fan community has really been very upset but very united in showing their support for andy and you know, it, it it's hasn't always been good blood, I think, between Mm-mm. Andy and the rest of the band, but also then as a result, I think between Andy and a lot of the fandom. You know, I think when it's split, I think there were a lot of fans that, you know, kind of took that personally against Andy, but they've really, really united around him. And that's really cool to see. 
As far as what you just said about the fans being a little bitter at him, I thought there was going to be some drama when I heard about it. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. And like you said, everyone's just kind of united together and just feeling bad for him. Yeah. You know? Well, and I, you know, I think that they've realized, I mean, Andy, gosh, in so many ways, he really was the backbone of that band. I mean, he brought that rock and roll edge that otherwise they would have been just another synth pop band. You know what I mean? So he, and then, you know, again, we talked about ordinary world and that was after Andy left the band and that was when Warren Cucurillo was in the band. So he was another just integral part, not just Mm -hmm. his musicianship, but also his songwriting. And uh, they said that he couldn't be there either, but they never really explained why or anything. And I'm kind of disappointed. I was, I'm a fan of Warren and I really had hoped that he was going to be there. I've heard they aren't on the best terms. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard they not really fans of each other anymore. Well, it really kind of sucked the way that he was let go from the band. I think that they handled it very poorly. So I can understand why, but you know, if Andy and the boys can bury the hatchet for the sake of the Hall of Fame, I'm sure that Warren would have done the same. And, I, you know, I haven't seen any any statements or anything to the contrary. I suspect that had he been there, I think everything would have been, at least for the night, I think everything would have been cool. So, okay, I think we're done with Duran Duran, yeah? All righty, who do we got next? Okay, so next up was a Musical Excellence Award Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, the famed music producers, former members of The Time. That was a really cool tribute, too. I mean, I I knew they had worked with Janet Jackson. I think that's probably what they're best known for. Yeah. I didn't realize that they'd also worked with the Human League and with George Michael. I didn't know they worked with the Human League. What did they do with the Human League? They produced Human. I was about to say, was it Human? Mm Mm-hmm. It was. And uh, actually, they credited Terry with coming up with that line, while we were apart, I was human too. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. Well, that does have a real R&B vibe to it. So now that you've pointed it out, I can say I love that song. Well, so there were some interviews where Phil Oakey is talking about how, you know, we had a bunch of songs that we'd written and he basically says, you know, they were they were just OK. But, you know, bringing jimmy jam and terry lewis into the mix it really just kind of elevated them to the next level in his acceptance speech jimmy jam oh this was beautiful he says music i call it the divine art and i say that because if someone said to you what were you doing 20 years ago now you might be able to piece it together in some kind of way but if i play you a song from 20 years ago every memory comes back yep it's the key that unlocks everything. I can I can definitely attest to that one. That's a true statement. Yeah, that was beautiful. Since we, we mentioned the Human League, I think we should play a little bit of Human here. What do you think? Let's go for it.
right. So after that, our next inductees were Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo. Total rock and roll power couple from the late 70s to the 80s and beyond. You couldn't take a step without hearing her over pretty much the entire decade of the 1980s. No, I think you're right, especially on MTV. I think that oh, uh, she was. Yeah, they put her out there. You know, I didn't know until the 90s that Neil was her husband. Yeah, I don't think I did either. And, you know, looking back at all of like the music videos and stuff, he's always right there with her. But it sounds like they were going into the history of them uh, as a couple a little bit and a music partnership first. Mm-hmm. So he's from Cleveland, Ohio, which is where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. Yep. And he was in a band in 1978 with Rick Derringer. Oh, wow. Somebody, their, their producer or whatever said, you know, hey, we just signed this new artist and she needs a backup band. So he started to play with her, but I mean, they just had this creative chemistry together immediately. And she says in an interview that if she hadn't already been signed as a solo artist, if she hadn't already been signed as Pat Benatar, then she would have formed this as a group and she would have, you know, because I mean, it was not just her and Neil, it was, the entire band that was really contributing to the music and to the sound. She, you know, she's one of those artists. Right? I, I don't think I ever purchased one of her albums, but I liked every song she had out on the radio. In fact, she was one of those artists that everybody seemed to like somewhat. You know, nobody... I never heard anybody going, man, I can't stand Pat Benatar. You know, yeah. I mean, she was everywhere. And then she did the song from The Legend of Billie Jean. She did two, didn't she? Is there two of her songs in that movie? So Love is a Battlefield, right? And oh, what was the other one? It's a newer situation. Invincible. Invincible. Ah, yes. That's I it. I think uh, Love is a Battlefield was used in the movie, but not written for the movie. I'm pretty sure Invincible was written for the film. I've never seen that movie. Is it any good? Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah? It, 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 you know what? It's cheesy, but it's a great 80s cheesy movie. So, yeah, I'll have to check it out. I wonder if it's on any streaming. I never really appreciated how much of a feminist icon Pat Benatar was. You know, Cheryl Crow, when she introduced her, said Pat was an incredible example. <laughs> she exemplified true feminism. She knew who she was and what she deserved. So I guess she was a classically trained singer from Long Island when she started out and she started off doing musical theater mm-hmm. and, you know, they do that montage before they do the induction. And she was talking about how she was inspired by an old kind of cheesy horror movie called cat women of the moon. I know that movie. I haven't seen it. But as inspired by this movie, she was wearing a black cat suit. When she got up on stage to sing, she said, not only did it change the way that I looked, but my attitude changed. I became really aggressive. It felt very powerful to be like that. And aggressive, that's really a good way to describe her persona, right? The way she presented herself live performances or MTV or whatever. I mean, it's just unapologetic, mm-hmm. kind of in your face, you know, rock and roll. 
I mean, and it is, it is pure rock and roll. That's what I was getting ready to say. She was, she was a rock star. She wasn't like most women, just a pop singer or dancey type of music. She was, she was a rock star. I mean, she was, she, that was great. Who, whoever was, if she did that or she had a management team or something that helped her, you know, create that image, it was brilliant. You know, they really knew what they were doing with that one. I kind of under the impression that that was her own doing. Well, that's, that's, it makes it even, even the more cooler then. Yeah. And you know what I didn't realize the second video ever aired on MTV. I mean, we know the first one, everybody knows the first one. Mm -hmm. Second video ever aired was you better run by Pat Benatar. I knew that. Yeah. You can watch, I think it's the first eight hours of MTV on YouTube. So. But be warned if you do that, there's a lot of Cliff Richard. There's a lot of Cliff Richard. (laughs) They didn't have anything else to play. No, they didn't. So Pat and Neil performed two songs at the induction, Love is a Battlefield and Heartbreaker. And I got to say, they sounded terrific. They looked terrific. Pat and Neil are grandparents now. How old is Pat? She's got to be in her mid-60s. Let's find out. 69. She looks, gosh, she looks amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you... Think about the stereotypical rock and roll lifestyle and, you know, how it's hard on a lot of people. But, man, she looks freaking awesome. I don't think she was a big partier or anything like that. Well, they were raising kids on the road, weren't they? I think they were, yeah. Yeah, so they were, you know, they had a family life going on while they were touring. Yeah. There needs to be a biography about Pat and Neil. There really does. I want to learn more about this love story here. Wasn't there an episode of Behind the Music on them? It probably was. You know, I, I found out they were married. And uh, what was that show that would come on VH1 in the late 90s? Well, where are they? Pop-up video? No, where are they now? Oh. And they, they were doing all those 80s episodes. And they were in one of them. I was like, oh, I didn't know that was her husband. Yeah. So what song should we play of Pat's, do you think? I think we should go with Love is a Battlefield. Good choice. We are young. Next up was the Amit Erdogan Award. Amit Erdogan Award for Jimmy Iovine. Yeah, so he was inducted by Bruce Springsteen. So Jimmy is a producer, very well known. Mm -hmm. He did Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. That was one of the songs that he produced. Well, he got a Nine Inch Nails on a, what was, what's his record label? Interscope. 
He started Interscope and got Nine Inch Nails on it and bought them out of that awful contract they had with TVT Records. Heck, some people will say Nine Inch Nails themselves is responsible for the success of Interscope Records because they blew up so big right there just after the label formed and, you know. No, I didn't know that, actually. So that's oh, that's, yeah. that's yeah, interesting that, to know. Yeah. Marilyn Manson ended up on Interscope due to Trent Reznor. Right, right. Because I know, yeah, Marilyn kind of followed in, in Trent's footsteps. Yeah. But there's a lot more people that Jimmy Iovine had worked with. You know, he worked with Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. And he was actually the one who suggested that Bruce give the song Because of the Night to Patti Smith. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's one of the things that Bruce was talking about in the induction. It was like a outtakes that Bruce had put together. And Jimmy heard something there and thought that it would become something really special in Patti Smith's hands and gave it to her. And that is one of those songs that is just so iconic. It is just the most passionate love song. You know, it just, it, it becomes something really special in her hands. So I'd like to play that song if that's okay. That's I know cool. you're okay. <laughs> Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close, try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed. one other thing about jimmy iovine is he did co-found beats by dre so he's also known for that as well i had no idea yeah on the technology side mm -hmm. all righty so what are we going what are we going to next okay so next we have an early influencer award for elizabeth libba cotton she was an old folk and blues singer african-american lady she played bass line, rhythm, and leads, and she actually played the guitar left-handed and upside down. She is really one of the precursors, I guess, to rock and roll. So she did this song called Freight Train, which has been covered by so many different people, but it became most famous when Pete Seeger, who was kind of the folk music icon, he recorded it in the 50s, and I think that's when it first became very famous. Uh, she wrote that song, incidentally, when she was a teenager, and it ended up being covered by Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jerry Garcia, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. Just so, so many artists have covered her. Learn something new every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, rock and roll in general, a lot of people tend to forget. It really started out with... Black music, yep. especially in 
the American South, you know, black folk, black blues. And it got packaged up, re-recorded a lot of white artists, you know, like Elvis, right? Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. And then it, it really exploded at that point. But I think it's super important that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is acknowledging the contribution of these black artists like Libba Cotton. So that was really cool. Yeah, that's that's great that they're doing that. Yeah. All right, Trey, next up is the Musical Excellence Award for Judas Priest. Can't say I'm a fan of these guys. So they've had a song or two I've enjoyed over the years. And they're an extremely talented band. I mean, don't get me wrong. Okay. But you're not a fan? You're not a fan of Judas Priest? They're okay. You know, they're another band that was all over the place back then. I mean, everybody knew somebody that loved them. I had a classmate in high school named Barry that just wore Judas Priest shirts to school every day of the week. You know, the three-quarter inch sleeve ones, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know the one you're talking about. He had a million of them, man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they'd go on tour and his mom would drive him up to Atlanta and over to Columbia. They'd go to, you know, catch both the dates in this area. And I, th- I always thought it was cool. His mom just supported it. Just, you know, let him do what he wanted to do. He was a good kid. He wasn't a, your average metalhead sort of guy. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I was happy that Judas Priest are finally getting their due. But this Musical Excellence Award, that's kind of like a, backdoor entry into the rock and roll hall of fame so they actually were up for a traditional induction much like duran duran and pat and neil Mm -hmm. and they didn't make it like the musical excellence award that's like one of the administrative like special awards i mean it almost i don't know maybe i'm overthinking it it feels almost a little insulting I wonder if they thought that themselves, like, you know, man, they're giving us the, you know, a gold star instead of the, you know. Right, right. But, you know, regardless of how they got there, I'm really happy that they are there. So they were inducted by Alice Cooper. Since this was a musical excellence award, they were inducted by a previous uh, inductee. Normally that's not the case, but. I mean, they certainly belong in the Hall of Fame. They're what is that, K.K. Downing? He's an excellent guitar player. Yes, oh, he is. He's so good. And they actually, I don't want to say they invented heavy metal, but they brought heavy metal to the next level. Oh, they sure did, for sure. And they were the first band that did, like, the le- the black leather, the studs, mm-hmm. the chains. What else? <laughs> I mean, they even did that song, Hellbent for Leather, right? And I, I think I know why you're laughing. Have you seen that infamous interview? Is this the one where... Um, I was hoping you were going to say it. Yeah, yeah. Is, is this the one where, where Rob came out of the Rob closet? Rob Halford. Yes, where he came out of the closet? Well, when, and this was some years after that, but somebody was interviewing him, and he said, you know, I, I can't understand why nobody realized I was gay. Look at the clothes I was wearing. Yeah, I mean, it was all coming from, like, leather bondage shops and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. He was like, you know, who surprised? Who was really surprised by my announcement? I was, you know, it was right there in front of you. You know, they actually uh, 
they played here in Augusta, I think it was in 87, and an older brother of a friend of mine was like an usher at the Civic Center, and had gotten backstage and really found out that Rob Halford was gay. You know, saw him and his boyfriend, like, you know, hugging each other and stuff. And so it went around school and in here that he was gay in 87. I read his autobiography, which, by the way, I loved. I mean, I was just kind of a, a, a medium fan, but after reading his book, now I'm a huge fan. Oh, he's a great guy. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, he really felt trapped in the closet for a long time. And it's interesting, you know, after all the Judas Priest shows, you'd, you'd hear about, you know, all the band members going off with the female groupies and stuff. And he would just go and lock himself in his hotel room. You know, he didn't want, want any part of that. And when he was finally out, I mean, just such a such a cool moment, I think, to, to have this person in heavy metal who who's out and you know god what could be more rock and roll than that you know just fuck you this is who i am this is my life you know and and and, and deal with it and he even said something like that in his acceptance speech where it's like you know it doesn't matter the color of your skin it doesn't matter who you love or what you believe or if you believe Rock and roll has a place for everybody. And I thought that was just so freaking awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, that had to be one up to a certain point, one of the most well-guarded secrets in rock and roll history. His bandmates were well aware of it. Oh, absolutely. They were. And they were very supportive of him. Yeah. They were very supportive of him. Actually, he also had uh, he had cancer, but it's in remission. Is he still living in Arizona? Oh, that's a good question. He was I don't living know. in Arizona for because they're originally from Birmingham in England. They're originally from the same town as Duran Duran. Yeah, it was like the night of the Brummies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know where he's living now, but um, they did perform. So they performed two of their classics, "Breaking the Law" and "After Midnight." So Trey, I know you mentioned you're not particularly a fan. There was a song that they did in the '80s that was all over the place. It's not one that they mentioned at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I would love to play Turbo Lover. I was going to say the, the big hit from 86. That's a decent song. All right. Well, let's play a little bit of it in honor of Judas Priest. Let's check it out, guys. we have another Amit Erdogan Award for Sylvia Robinson. Now, she was the founder of Sugar Hill Records, and she's called the mother of hip hop. 
she was really the first person who heard what these kids in New York were doing with turntables and beatboxing and rapping and thought, you know, this would be really good to record, to actually put on a record and put out. And it had never occurred to anybody until that point that that was something that should be done. I mean, it was really something that was being done at house parties and stuff. It was very much live performance. So she was the driving force behind two landmark singles in the hip hop genre, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang Mm -hmm. and The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Mm -hmm. I I know the artists and the music. I didn't know that part of the story. And how could you not know Sugar Hill Gang? That's one of those, it's almost, I don't know, a standard nowadays. And you've got that infamous scene in The Wedding Singer with the grandma. Have you seen that? No, of course I haven't seen it. Are you, you kidding? Never... Lori, we're going to have to do an episode of just <laughs> stuff Lori hasn't seen. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> the Wedding Singers, that's the 80s movie. Yeah. I mean, you need to see. How, how did you not escape that? Because it's Adam Sandler. I don't like Adam Sandler either. And I refused, when it was, came out in theaters and all, I, refused, I was like, I'm not watching that. I hate Adam Sandler. And this girl I worked with when it came out on VHS went out and brought a copy of it and said, you're coming to my house and you're going to watch this because you will love it. And she's like, I'm not letting you say no. So I went, and I was like, okay, it's a really cool movie. They reference a cure in it. Okay. But I know, I do know there's a scene where there's an old lady that's doing Rapper's yeah. Delight. Yeah, I know that. So another song that Sylvia Robinson is responsible for, she was a co-writer on White Lines, Don't Do It by Melly Mel. Oh. Yeah. I know Melly Mel. So, and of course, White Lines, Duran Duran actually did a cover of. Yeah. They play it in their set to this day and the audience goes fucking wild when they play it. But I'd like to play a little bit of the original if you don't mind. Let's, let's, Let's give it a listen. instrumental in the rise of hip-hop not just in new york but around the world uh so sylvia robinson well deserved okay all righty so what do we, who do we have next carly simon oh i'm familiar with her so her and her infamous song and the mystery behind who it may or may not be about you're so vain 
So what have you heard about that one? What's his face? The guy that was in a, was it a, 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 a star of heaven can wait. Warren Beatty? Yes. Yeah. There are several rumors about who You're So Vain is about. Warren Beatty's the most common, and most notably, Carly Simon has not confirmed nor denied those rumors. I've heard it's about David Geffen, too. She said it's a, an amalgamation of a few different people. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't heard about David Geffen. Um, I do know that that's Mick Jagger on the backing vocals for that song. I was about to say, I've also heard it was might, might be aimed at Mick Jagger. I think the person who said that might be getting your signals crossed because uh, she actually talked about it in the montage sequence about how they got Mick to record it. So originally it was supposed to be Harry Nilsson in the studio recording the backing vocals. And Harry is friends with Mick and got on the phone and had Mick come into the studio. And Mick sounded so good and had such good chemistry on the song, good blending with Carly's voice that Harry Nilsson said, you know what? I'm not gonna be on this recording. You and Mick got it. So based on that, I think it's very, very unlikely that the song is about Mick because that seems like a weird way to get him on the recording if, you know what I mean? That'd be a really good fuck you if it turned to be true though. And it wouldn't be the first time that somebody, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like doing a Stevie Nicks and having, yeah, oh, yeah. having Lindsey Buckingham sing on songs <laughs> that are about him. We could get a whole episode out of that one. Yeah. So uh, obviously You're So Vain is the song that I think Carly Simon is best known for. Mm -hmm. She's also known for Anticipation, which apparently was written about a date with Cat Stevens. She had a date coming up with him and she was a nervous wreck. It was coming up in a few hours. So she penned the song in a few hours while she was waiting for the date. And what came out is pretty close to the final form, which I think is pretty amazing. So when Sarah Bareilles was inducting Carly, she says, questioning social norms and pushing back on gender stereotypes. It reflected the feminist movement rising up at the time that continues today. Besides anticipation, you're so vain. She's done a lot of work with James Taylor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they actually were eventually married at one point. And she received an Oscar, but I was surprised. I thought she would have gotten an Oscar for Nobody Does It Better, which was the Bond theme from. Yep. The Spy Who Loved Me, but she didn't. She actually got an Oscar for Let the River Run, which was from the 1989 movie Working Girl. I've seen the movie. I, I, I can't, I can't pick, get the song in my head. Well, we're going to play it now. All right, let's check it out. We're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters.
Yeah. So that was Let the River Run. And she did receive an Oscar for that. So Carly Simon could not appear at the induction ceremony. They said due to a personal emergency, both of Carly's sisters died within a couple days of each other of cancer. Wow. Yeah. And I know she had started off as half of a, a duet or a duo rather with, with one of her sister, sister Lucy. And that was one of the sisters that had died. So what a week for her, you know, like this roller coaster, two sisters dying of two different kinds of cancer and then getting inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. That's, that's terrible. How old is Carly? Carly is, I want to say 75. Let's look 79. She is 79. Yes. And uh, I mean, in the late seventies, you could not turn on the radio without hearing Carly Simon. Exactly. She was everywhere. All right. So next up was another Amit Ertigan award for Alan Grubman, who is a famous attorney. And of course I'm thinking, what the hell, why are they inducting an attorney into the rock and roll hall of fame? He was inducted by John Cougar Mellencamp. And apparently He's represented numerous artists over the years, but Bruce Springsteen said Alan was instrumental in rebalancing the scales in favor of the artist. While they call it the music business, the business always had the upper hand. Alan turned that around. And his clients besides Bruce Springsteen have included Madonna, U2, John Mellencamp, Rod Stewart, P. Diddy, Luther Vandross, Elton John, J-Lo. Mariah Carey and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And one of the things that he is best known for is for ensuring that his artists retain creative control and retain the rights to their masters. And that has not always been the case. I mean, you, over the decades, there have been many, many horror stories about artists who not only have lost their masters, but in some cases even lost their rights to the name that they performed under. I mean, I'm thinking of Poe, uh, Annie Danielewski in the nineties, and that was her stage name. She can no longer use that name because the record company had the rights to that. So Alan Grubman was known for fighting on behalf of the artists. I really appreciated Trey. I don't know if you watched this particular part of the ceremony. When John Cougar Mellencamp introduced him, he took the opportunity to speak out against anti-Semitism. Well, that's, yeah, that's a good thing right now. And it was a very, very moving, very powerful speech. And he said, silence is complicity. And I really appreciated hearing that from John Mellencamp. And I think, like you said, this is a message that needs to get out, especially now. Yeah. I like John Cougar. I, saw, I actually saw him live in the mid '80s too. It was a great show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, no, I, I never would have expected you to be a, a fan of his. I mean, you know, back then in the '80s, people—it it wasn't so out of character to be a fan of someone that wasn't in your genre back then, because you know, people would have massive hits, and everybody would like the song. His music is fantastic, most of it. He's done stuff over the course of the 90s and such I didn't really care for. But back then, he was a hit machine. Okay. And I actually went and saw him. I think it was summer of 85. We got so few concerts here 
down here in small town georgia that uh you know anybody that came here everybody would go to the concert and see it so there's gonna be a couple of weird ones that are gonna come up later you're gonna be like you you did what you know? <laughs> well but you know i i appreciate what you're saying i think that live music is such a an experience right that even if it's a band that maybe i'm not a huge fan of mm-hmm. you know if i have the opportunity i might go anyway i mean at least maybe that might have been true before now maybe post covid i don't know if that's necessarily true exactly but- I'm, I'm still a little uneasy about going to big events but you know john it was a great concert too he's a fantastic performer oh that's cool up next, we have Lionel Richie, who got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, he's another one that we can say you couldn't take a step in the 80s without hearing or seeing him. You know, he was very instrumental in the video thing, too. He always had some fantastically unique videos for a couple of his songs. Again, he's someone I wouldn't go so far as to say I was a fan of. But, he, you know, he had some songs I liked over the years. And he's one of those that you just, you can't hate. Nobody can hate Lionel mm-hmm. Richie, you know? So when he was inducted by Lenny Kravitz, who, by the way, is one of my favorite rock and rollers, he introduced him as a down-home brother from Tuskegee, Alabama. I had no idea he was from Alabama. Yeah, and he says to name, cool. to name all of his brilliant songs would take, well, mm-hmm. all night long. yeah yeah that was cute so i mean obviously he worked with the commodores before he went solo along with michael jackson he composed we are the world yeah and he wrote the song lady for kenny rogers but he's really best known for songs like easy like sunday morning so he performed easy like sunday morning and then he performed all night long Mm mm-hmm when I first heard that he was being inducted, I was like, oh, that's not rock and roll. But I completely changed my mind seeing him perform it with Dave Grohl. And Dave Grohl joined him on guitar. Yeah, I was going to say. For Easy Like Sunday Morning. And that was fucking rock and roll, man. Well, you know, Faith No More did a cover of that song, too, in the early 90s. Did they really? Yeah, it's fantastic. It sounds exactly like Lionel Richie. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, they didn't change a thing about it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, Lionel Richie, when he got up and accepted, he said, rock and roll is not a color. It's a feeling. It's a vibe. I could not agree more. So he did perform, like we said, Easy Like Sunday Morning and All Night Long, and he had the audience on their feet dancing. All Night Long is great. So I'm thinking maybe that's the song we should play. What do you think? Yeah, we'll get our audience's uh, toes tapping. There you go. Yourself in wild romance, we're going to party, caramel, the 
So that was really a cool song at the time. I'd never heard anything like it when it first came out. I mean, it has a very Calypso vibe to it. Oh, yeah. That was a massive, massive hit. Was it 84? 83. 83. I think I might have had the 45 for that one. I can't remember. Remember, you could buy three of them for $5 at some stores. Okay. I would go and do that all the time. Like Kmart, Woolworths, and places like that. So I would do that all the time. Okay. I mean, that song was all over the daggone place. And that was one of those songs that was on the pop channel, the R&B channel. You know, it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Up next, we have Hailing from the UK, the Eurythmics. And they're most, most notably known for Annie Lennox and her gender-bending appearance. Which was, I think that was part of why they got so famous there so fast what do you think oh you know i i talked about that in a previous episode you know how what how she she was a huge influence on me and and you know yeah what i thought could be considered feminine she said in this uh again in the montage leading up to their induction she said i wanted to be seen as an equal to my partner i didn't want to be perceived in a particularly kind of sexual passive way and that's where I think she kind of adopted this androgynous look, you know, and it really, especially contrasted with the, her just beautiful, beautiful voice, mm-hmm. you know, really got people's attention. And, you know, you mentioned that it was their imagery that, you know, uh, brought them to the forefront. Well, Dave Stewart said, MTV let the world witness our visual artistry for the yeah. first time. They are as much, I think, visual performers as they are music performers. Yep. Dave also said, we understood that we were image makers as well as music makers. And they really, really did. So they performed three songs. They performed Would I Lie to You? And John Taylor was on his feet for that one. That's a great song. Well, you know, you know, I'm a karaoke junkie. Mm-hmm. That is the first song I ever sang karaoke to in my life. Oh, wow. And it was right after I had left my ex-husband. And that song, I mean, it came from here. It came It came from a, a place within here. That was your, uh, this sister's free again song? Yes. And, and I loved it. And I love the feeling of just being up in front of the audience. And, you know, even if it didn't sound particularly good, you know, and so, yeah, I, I'm addicted to karaoke now. Then they segued into Missionary Man. Yeah, I love that song. Fantastic. And there's a, a Swedish, I guess you could say metal band called Ghost. Just did it. I actually love that band. They don't really fit in this show, but. They did a terrific cover of it that is just amazing and absolutely rocks. 
And speaking of covers, they ended with Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, which is probably their most covered song. Is it? Yeah, don't you think? I mean, Manson did it. Oh, yeah, he did do that. I completely forgot about that. But there have been a lot of covers of that song. So, I mean, they still fucking rock. You know, Annie, I think her voice over the years maybe has gotten a little hoarse, but that's understandable. She still looks fucking sensational. Yeah, she does. And they had everybody. I mean, they had John Taylor from Duran Duran on his feet. You know, I mean, the audience just they were blown away. It was so, so good. What song do you think we should play here? Missionary Man. So I hope my mother's not listening to this. <laughs> I think all women in the back of their mind have a song that they say, if I was a stripper, this is my song. <laughs> And Missionary Man would be my stripper song. So if you're listening, hi, mom. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's, a, it's a fucking rocking song, man. So let's listen to Missionary Man. Well, I was born an original sinner. I was born from original sin. And if I had a dollar bill for all the things I've done, there'd be a mountain of money piled up to my chin. My mother told me good, my mother told me strong. She said, be true to yourself it can go wrong but there's just one thing that you must understand you can fool with your brother but don't mess with a missionary man don't mess with a missionary man don't mess with a missionary man don't mess with a missionary man, missionary man. I, wonder that, I wonder if that did get some airplay in the strip clubs back in the 80s well, you know, there's that scene in Striptease where Demi Moore is stripping to Little Bird by Annie Lennox. And that is, you know, unless you actually see it, you're like, how could somebody perform a routine to this song? And it works. I've actually never seen that movie. Oh, maybe we should do an episode about movies that Trey <laughs> has never seen. <laughs> is, that, is that the infamous one that was supposed to be so terrible? Or am I thinking what was it was the pretty other? bad? It was pretty bad. You might be thinking of G.I. Jane, but yeah, Striptease was not great. Burt Reynolds was probably the only redeeming factor of that movie. What was the girl from uh, Saved by the Bell that was in it? And... Oh, no, you're thinking of Showgirls. You're thinking of yes, Showgirls. Yes, oh, that's what I was thinking of. See, now Showgirls is so bad, it's good. That's one of those I keep meaning to check out. And Striptease, too, actually, is on my list of things okay. I should watch. For the record, I like to G.I. Jane. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> Showgirls is, it's completely campy and you know it's again it, it, it's in the so bad it's good category so i yeah, I, I like it anyway anyway moving on all right so next we have another early influencer award harry belafonte well, you, you can't help but love harry he, he's that one song and that one movie 
What is the name of the song in the first place? Uh, Deo, the banana boat song. I always just called it the song about elephants. I mean, or, or jump in the line, the, one of the bananas. Two. Yeah, so so Deo, the banana boat song, and jump in the line, which were both repopularized in the '80s in the movie Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Jamie Fox introduced his award, and he said he spoke truth to power. Harry Belafonte really was an advocate for equality. I mean, he, he, he was connected to Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't know if he actually marched with him, but I know there was a connection there. There is. I've read that too, but I can't place it. Oh, I've seen pictures of them together. And, you know, obviously big part of USA for Africa. Uh, there's actually, there was a video that they showed part of when they were recording USA for Africa, we are the world. They had all of the USA for Africa people singing Deo together and Harry Belafonte's just got this big smile on his face. And, you know, it's, it's, it was a cool moment, you know, it was like, you could tell everybody was really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, much, much deserved, huge early influencer, happy to see him finally get his due. Uh, Should we play Dale? Let's go. All right. Let's check it out. Work all night and a drink a rum. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me one go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me one go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me one go home. Live six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. All righty, Laurie. So up next, we have Eminem, the infamous white rapper. Is that a good way to put it? I think that's that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't know what to say. about. I don't know much about him. Well, you know more than I do because uh, you you were from Detroit at one time, weren't you? But yeah, apparently we were neighbors at one point. He lived in a town called Sterling Heights, which is about 10 minutes away from where I lived, which was Auburn Hills. And uh, the people that I bumped into that had an encounter with him said he's a really, really cool and nice guy. And, you know, not what you would expect from somebody like that at all. And he even said he just lives in a nice, you know, in a normal neighborhood, not in a humongous McMansion or anything like that. So... You know, I, I can't say I care for any of his. I really, I can't even get a song of his in my in my mind. So, just not my cup of tea. Well, you know, yeah, he's not really mine either. But what you were just talking about about you know, like having a modest house and everything, that was the one thing that struck me about his acceptance speech is how modest he was. Mm-hmm. His entire acceptance speech was him calling out all his influences and those who came before in the hip hop genre. And it was an epic list in alphabetical order. Oh, wow. He says, those are just a few of the names that I hope will be considered in the future for induction because without them, a lot of us wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't. He was inducted by Dr. Dre and Dr. Dre obviously is the one who discovered him and mentored him. And he said in the induction speech, 
I guess it was my ignorance at the time thinking that, okay, if you're a good rapper, you must be black, right? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a balanced way to, to approach this. So you said he's not your cup of tea. I don't care for him either. I think his lyric writing ability is amazing and his ability to yeah, definitely. rhythm and rhyme, beautiful. I just don't like his voice. I think he sounds like a Muppet. <laughs> I have seen him perform uh, live. He was at Lollapalooza one year. And, you know, I the friend I was with was really into him. So I'm like, okay, sure, let's go. And, you know, I, I need to be able to say that I've seen him at least once. But his uh, performance, so he did a bunch of uh, uh, bits of songs. And the first few songs, My Name Is, Rap God, I'm like, oh, okay. But, you know, when Steven Tyler got up on stage and did Sing for the Moment with him, I thought, wow, this is this is a very powerful moment. And, you know, my dad and I, as we were watching this, we were talking about how Aerosmith really owes the entire second half of their career to rap music. Yeah, for specifically, sure. Specifically, we're talking about, you know, run DMC and mm-hmm. walk this way because Aerosmith had pretty much been forgotten about at that point. So it was good to see that uh, good on him and, and, you know, good on the rock hall of fame for, you know, pushing the gauntlet a little bit here. He's definitely got a good, interesting story, too, with how he grew up in just terrible poverty and then, you know, managed to accomplish all this stuff with this career. So that's, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So after Eminem, they did their in memoriam segment and they honored you know, people in the music industry that had passed away. You know, was there any mention of Olivia Newton-John during the ceremony? They did mention Olivia newton that really broke my heart. I loved her. And, you know, when I was, she, she got real famous there when I was a little boy and I just was enthralled with her. Yeah. And Xanadu was <laughs> one of my all time favorite movies, which I've, I've, I've been the butt of many jokes for that one. You know what I'm going to say? But I've never seen Xanadu. To be honest with you, you aren't missing much. It, it's really not that great of a movie. It's just, for me, it's something from my childhood. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's a hokey love story, and it's, I don't know. If you want to see some good disco action, it's worth a look. Yeah. It, so back to the In Memoriam segment, though, it was actually really kind of a long segment. I was kind of surprised. And then at the conclusion, Bruce Springsteen and John Mellencamp performed Great Balls of Fire. Oh wow, pretty cool. Yeah, that was it. Was actually yeah. it, it was cool. Yeah, he would have, would have just what been passed away about a week when this went down. Yeah, yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, mm-hmm. he just very very recently died. So I forgot that Loretta Lynn is another one that just just what three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Yeah, early October. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of country artists. The last inductee of the night was Dolly Parton, and she was inducted by Pink, who said Dolly gives a voice to the voiceless. She sings out our heartache and puts it to words for us. This is another one, Trey, where when I heard it, I'm like, really? Why is she in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? But then she comes out on stage wearing a black patent leather skin tight outfit with chains. It's Dolly Parton. 
well, looking like she'd be at home in Judas Priest with this outfit. 76 years old, looking fucking fantastic. Oh my gosh. I should look half as good when I am 76. I would be happy. But she comes out and she says, I'm a rock star now. And she's so adorable about it. She's so humble. Yeah. I, I love the way she just kind of get, 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 takes everything and puts it into her own special way of doing things. She's fantastic at that. Yeah. And so she says, if I'm going to be in your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I'm going to have to earn it. And then she debuted a new song that she wrote specifically for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame called Rockin' where she's name checking all of her influences like Elvis and Chuck Berry, among many others. And it was fun. It was so much fun to, to listen to. And then of course, the end of the show, she performed Jolene and everybody got up on stage with her pink, Annie Lennox, Simon Laban, Pat Benatar, Rob Halford. There was a moment Annie Lennox was wearing this bright red cowboy hat and she and pink were doing this little kind of country and Western jig on the corner of the stage. But, you know, the best moment for me was her and Rob Halford at the microphone together singing, Jolene, please don't take my man. <laughs> because knowing what we know about Rob Halford now, that really, yeah. that puts a very unique kind of gender bending spin on it. I really enjoyed that. I think Jolene has to be one of those songs that's been uh, covered about a gazillion times. Sisters of Mercy were prone to playing it live back in the 80s. Since we're talking primarily about the 80s, I mean, we're not limited to the 80s in this podcast, but I'm leaning towards nine to five for our- uh, <laughs> That's the our... one I was going to pick too. Okay. Well, why were you going to pick nine to five? It's just, just, you know, that was her big hit of the 80s, really. And it's, it's a good movie. And this, the song is relatable even today for, I mean, I know you can relate to it, right? <laughs> Don't get me started. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. With folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a Let me guess, you haven't seen the movie, have you? Oh, I have, I have, I okay. love it. Yeah, Dabney <laughs> Coleman, it plays a like total creep. I love Lily Tomlin. And yeah, Jane Fonda is also good in it. But yeah, they, the three of them have, have a really good kind of sister chemistry. You know what I mean? And you don't see that a lot in movies from the 80s. There's some, but usually, you know, when you see three protagonists in a movie, it was three guys, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was very much a, a feminist touchstone, I think. And it's really a shame that we haven't made more progress since then. You know, in the movie, some of the things they were implementing, like uh, a flex time, 
you know, where some people could work eight to four, some people could work nine to five, some could work 10 to six, you know, at childcare on site, stuff like that, where in 2022, we're still fighting for this. Exactly. It's horrible. Yeah. You know, you think we would have made more progress. You know, I was just going to add that, uh, not many people are aware of it, but nine to five was actually a very, very short little TV series too. I remember it. I only have a scant memory of it. I don't think it made it. Oh, and Jeffrey Tambor, he played, uh, he played Dabney Coleman's. I think character. he was on every show in the eighties. Oh, I think he and was. Yeah. And a good many movies too. Just kind of, he would just appear out of nowhere. Yep. And he was on Hollywood squares all the time too. That's it for our episode on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, not yet. Wait. Okay. So now that we're now that we're through this episode, Trey, now that we've we've talked about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, let me ask you, who do you think are the biggest omissions? Like two. Give me two uh, acts that you think it, it's like a travesty that they're omitted and they, they need to be inducted. That, two, maybe three. That's a complicated answer. Oh, boy. <laughs> you, you, you've opened a box here. There are a lot of bands I feel like that would deserve to be in there, but I don't think they just ever got quite popular enough to get in there. Jesus and Mary Chain, for example, hmm. or a band like Susie and the Banshees, I think would certainly belong in there, but I don't think they have a big enough following in this country for them to be being put in there. Not mainstream enough, huh? Right. I think a band that we both like it. Most people like us enjoy is Depeche Mode, and they certainly belong in there. I think that one's just a matter of time. I do too. And in fact, I think it's going to happen next year in light of all that. You know, we forgot to mention uh, Andy Fletcher's passing. I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah. But they certainly belong in there. And big, another big omission. Hmm. It seems like all the ones that I thought sh- should be in there and weren't getting in there have gotten in there over about the past four years. I mean, The Cure. Nine Inch Nails. We just saw Duran Duran get in there. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of new wave bands. I can't think of another new wave band that would. All right. Well, there are a couple, I think, notable omissions. So one of them that Nick Rhodes mentioned in his acceptance speech, the New York Dolls. They're not. I thought they were in there. They were nominated this Ooh. year, but they didn't make it in. Wow. And, and they were so influential and uh so many bands uh i mean they opened the door for so many punk bands Mm -hmm. so they definitely deserve it another one that got nominated but didn't get in devo oh they they for sure belong in there i mean devo and talking heads kind of are in the same vein and both super influential in terms of yeah kind of i mean almost like i guess nerd chic Mm -hmm. you know and and that kind of quirky but intelligent mm-hmm. music right and then the last one that i'll leave our listeners with that has not been nominated yet but needs to be is in excess oh yeah how could i right over my head and now that their contemporaries duran duran have been inducted i think it's only a matter of time before in excess get inducted um i do need to mention there is an online campaign to get in excess inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. It's induct in excess.com. Uh, the gentleman that runs it is named Dr. Jim and uh, it's, they've been getting a lot of support, a lot of signatures on their petition. And then also I do need to give a shout out to my friends, Hayden and B who run the podcast in excess access, all areas. And their stated mission is to get 
in excess into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, let's hope they're successful because that is, yeah, they're a fantastic band. So, hey, listeners, check out inductinexcess.com and uh, show your support because I think it would be fantastic to get them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Indeed, it will. Let's hope it happens very soon. Yeah. So, hey, Trey, we've got an episode coming up in two weeks specific to the holidays. What are we working on? Okay, up next is going to be our Christmas episode. A lot of, there's more new wave Christmas songs than I ever imagined were actually out there and doing my research over the past few days for this one. So this one's going to be interesting. I'm having a challenge trying to whittle my list down as well. So um, it's like there's hundreds of them. There's, there's enough to do this year and maybe next year and the year after that, if we wanted to. So yeah. we will highlight some of our favorite holiday themed songs and uh, that will be in two weeks. So on that note, thank you for listening. It's a goodbye from me. Good night, everybody. And thank you again for listening and supporting us. 